Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Pettiprin. In each episode, we bring you in-depth conversations with Catholic authors, focusing on the most important cultural and ecclesiastical matters of our age. For the past 40 years, Ignatius Press has been the leader in Catholic publishing, with a wide variety of media, of authors and titles, old and new. We invite you to learn more about us and explore our extensive offerings at ignatius.com. If you like what we do here on the podcast, don't forget to subscribe, follow us on social media, and please consider giving us a five-star review. We pray that this podcast will inspire you as you grow in your faith. Now, on with the show. Lead kindly light amid the encircling gloom. Lead thou me on. The night is dark and I am far from home. Lead thou me on. Keep thou my feet. I do not ask to see the distant scene. One step enough for me. So wrote John Henry Newman, ill and stranded on the island of Sicily in 1833. At that time, the future Catholic saint was an Anglican and quite unmoved by the Roman Catholic culture from which he found himself temporarily unable to escape. Nonetheless, Newman was physically and spiritually on a great journey. And in time, he came to see that there was but one road leading to one destination. He left home in order eventually to find home. One step enough for me. Newman is obviously a precious saint for those who have come into full communion with the Catholic Church after many dark nights contemplating where they belong. But unlike Newman, who spent the first half of his life as an Anglican and the second half as a Catholic, many of us who have journeyed home to Rome have passed through Anglicanism in between multiple varieties of Protestantism and our final destination on the bark of Peter. Among the most prominent of such journeymen today is Father Dwight Longenecker, pastor of Our Lady of the Rosary Catholic Church in Greenville, South Carolina, and author of There and Back Again, A Somewhat Religious Odyssey, his new spiritual autobiography from Ignatius Press. As Father Longenecker chronicles in his witty, riveting, and endearing account of his life as a Christian, his present state as a Catholic priest bears the marks of the many agonies and ecstasies he has seen along the way. He was a Protestant layman, then an Anglican clergyman, then a Catholic layman, and now, by God's grace, Christ's man at Christ's altar, a Catholic priest. Father Longenecker is a married man and a father of four grown children. Today, he teaches the Catholic faith to his own parishioners and to a worldwide audience through books and media, but he was prepared for service in a providentially unconventional way, smuggling Bibles with fellow American evangelicals behind the Iron Curtain, wearing three-piece suits as a foretaste of his later Catholic understanding of the transcendental virtue of beauty, raking leaves for a Catholic woman who helped him become an Anglican priest while praying he would one day journey further, and witnessing miracles, hitchhiking through the old world. 
Father Longenecker's odyssey took him from Pennsylvania to Bob Jones University in South Carolina, to Wycliffe Hall, Oxford, to a pilgrimage across Europe to Jerusalem, to the charming Isle of Wight, and finally back to the USA, and to the city where he first realized he was made for service to the Lord in holy orders. As Father Longenecker puts it, borrowing from Tolkien, there and back again. At each bend in the road, Father Longenecker contemplated a statement from F.D. Morris, an Anglican theologian who was a contemporary of Newman's. A man is most often right in what he affirms and wrong in what he denies. With an open heart to the Lord's command, Father Longenecker made his way, step by step, to the more perfect cleansing of the thoughts of his heart, a more perfect love for Christ's holy name, and a more perfect service to the one church. Lead kindly light. Father Dwight Longenecker is the author of several books, contributes regularly to many publications and websites, and is a high-demand Catholic speaker. It is a pleasure to welcome him to the Ignatius Press podcast. Father Dwight Longenecker, welcome to the Ignatius Press podcast. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thanks for the invitation. I'm really glad that we have the opportunity to talk today because I really enjoyed your your wonderful spiritual memoir called There and Back Again, A Somewhat Religious Odyssey. And I want to start by, by saying I, I really appreciated the use of the word odyssey in, in the subtitle there because not only is your book full of uh, adventures and worldwide travels, but odyssey is also a word we associate with homecoming, which is one of those words that we talk about with regard to people like you and me who have come into the Catholic Church from a Protestant tradition. We're welcomed home over and over again. And I want to get to the home part uh, in due course, but before we can get home, we need to or get back home. We need to set the stage for where we're where we're starting. So would you would you tell our listeners about your your upbringing in Pennsylvania, your religious background and your family, and what you got into in the the uh, early stages of the book. Sure. Uh, Longenecker is actually a Swiss Mennonite name. And um, my ancestors were Mennonites from Switzerland who went to the um, colony of Pennsylvania in the 1770s uh, searching for religious freedom. Uh, and so I'm quite proud of that heritage. Uh, it's a heritage which filtered down to my own parents and grandparents' generation in which they left, my grandfathers on both sides, left their um, increasingly liberal Protestant denominations and sort of did their own startup churches. And that's kind of in the Mennonite tradition, you know, and, and in the, the the best of the Protestant tradition, kind of like, right, we're going for the, we're going, we're fed up with the corrupt church, the immoral church, the whatever church, and we're going to start our own. And, um, while I don't want to emulate their uh, their example, I do admire it. And in many ways, my own departure from that to the Anglican Church and then to the Catholic Church is a similar kind of journey, but in the other direction. Yeah, I find that interesting. You know, um, you you talk about your experiences of religion as a as a young man in this community, where um, certainly, and I, this is something that resonated with me too, that it's it's not uncommon in certain communities to 
just start a new church, for example, just as you said. Now, you say that you did, in your book, you talk about how you did have certain experiences where you witnessed bad religion, where you witnessed bad behavior among, among religious leaders. And I was very struck by that, in particular, because you're now a Catholic priest, and obviously there are, there are all kinds of bad behavior problems in the Catholic church as well. Um, how did your experiences seeing that in the Protestant world growing up um, shape your view of Christianity and ultimately, you know, where you are now as a Catholic priest? Yeah, that's a good question. We had, um, of course, very high values, very high standards set for ourselves in an evangelical um, Christian religion of a conservative bent. Uh, and this, of course, applied to us, but also to our pastors. And yet, even as a young man, I can remember uh, the Protestant pastors getting into trouble, you know, um, there was whisperings of this one having an affair or that one uh, putting his hand in the cookie jar and and, and being, um, you know, embezzling funds or whatever, or being greedy or lustful. And <clears throat> from a very early age, I'll say from about the age of 10 or 12, I can remember thinking this through and on the one hand being shocked and dismayed at the um, betrayal by our leaders, but also on the other hand, realizing that um, I wasn't perfect and why should I expect them to be? And that the gospel was something greater than the um, church leaders that we were associated with. And so I think I quite early on got used to the idea that um, the Christian faith and the Christian gospel is greater than the frailties of the people who are trying to be our examples in it. And to have, not to be tolerant of the human frailty necessarily, but to be understanding and to realize that actually, well, put it this way, what did you expect? You know, <laughs> if you if you read the Old Testament, um, the greatest heroes of the Old Testament were, were some, some terrible sinners. So uh, that should also be a good example and help you to be able to cope with the inconsistencies and the hypocrisies uh, and the problems with our religious leaders. Yeah, and you know, related to that, in your in your testimony of your your life as a as a young Christian, I, I was struck by how you you really were appreciative in your in your telling of your story of your family, of their religious faith, of their of their background, and you know, certain things about your life, like you didn't have a television growing up, and the children, the other children at school, would talk about you know what what happened last night on Mr. Ed or you know, whatever television show people were watching and it didn't, and it didn't bother you. It, it seems, it seems as though you just, you just got on with things and you made do. Is that an, is that an accurate account? I was struck by that. Yeah. I think probably looking back on it, I was probably embarrassed by some of these things. Also, I was aware that our main sort of uh, center for our family life was located away from school in the other direction that this sort of fundamentalist church we went to and that that made me a bit of an outsider at school. Um, I don't know. I think I have a pretty heavy dose of that Mennonite blood, which is kind of an independent spirit, uh, following one's own values and not really being a people pleaser. Yeah, and I, uh, and yeah. I consider I consider that to be kind of a little red badge of courage, I suppose. Yeah, and it seems like, and I want to pick this up a little bit later, but you know, it seems to me that part of your part of your rebellion, if I can call it, is your your desire to go deeper, actually. It's not, your rebellion is not that you want to go and have more fun than is afforded to you. It's, it seems to me that your rebellion is you want to, 
you know, you want to read poetry, you want to wear three piece suits and, and, you know, and that kind of thing, which I, I, I really, I appreciated that in your testimony about your young life. And I want to pick that up in just a second when we talk about your experience as a student at Bob Jones University. But before that, uh, one of the stories I enjoyed most in the book was your telling of your first trip to Europe when you went to France as a teenager. Would you tell, tell us about that? Yeah. Uh, in my senior year in high school, we had a missionary visit our home uh, who was the founder of a, a evangelical Christian mission called Slavic Gospel Association. And he was a uh, refugee from Ukraine. From And this was, of course, during the time of com the communist regime in Russia. And one of their main ministries was trying to smuggle religious literature into the Eastern Bloc countries. So they did this with youth mission teams. So I signed up and uh, the summer after my senior year in high school, joined a mission team to, we were based in France, but we took um, trips from there as the as sort of the base camp uh, and took trips into uh, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, the different uh, Eastern Bloc countries with uh, Christian uh, vans loaded full of Christian literature. Uh, and very often it was Russian in Russian as well. And these would be the next postings, staging post for the literature to go then from Poland and be transported from the, the Eastern Bloc satellite countries into Russia itself. And so uh, at the end of our mission time, we had a little time for vacation. We traveled to Paris and took in the sites. And that was the first time I actually visited a Catholic church in a conscious way. And it was at the Great Basilica of Sacré-Cœur up on Montmartre on the hill above Paris. And for anybody who's been there, they know that Montmartre, uh, the Basilica of Sacré-Cœur, the Sacred Heart, is and has been is now and has been for over a century the uh, center of perpetual Eucharistic adoration. There's a huge monstrance in the church, which probably is about three or four foot across uh, the the sort of actual uh, host, and it's there uh, suspended above the altar. And it's a great temple to Eucharistic adoration. So I went in not knowing anything about all of this, uh, but knelt in the in the presence in the darkness in the candlelight on that summer evening, uh, and experienced the real presence for the first time, not knowing what it was or not knowing anything about the Catholic faith or the Eucharistic adoration, but sensing that the Lord was there and I wanted to be in his presence. Wow, that's a wonderful story. I wonder if you are if you had related this to, uh, to anyone back home, if they would have thought that was a kind of idolatry. I, I, I didn't know what I would have been talking about. All I knew is that I was in a sacred place and I wanted to stay there and, and, um, and pray. Mm-hmm. Well, so after this this trip, which obviously uh, had a major impact on you and planted a seed for many future travels and living abroad, uh, you decided to enroll at Bob Jones University. And I'm not sure if all of our listeners know what Bob Jones University is. So would you would you tell us about that and your family's connections to it? Yeah, Bob Jones University was founded in 1927 by uh, an itinerant evangelist named Bob Jones. Well, he's now called Bob Jones Sr. because he's the founder. Uh, and by the post-war period, it was thriving. And uh, it was, it's now considered pretty much a kind of Southern Baptist or Bapt independent Baptist kind of university or college. But at the time, the ideal was that he would found a college for Christian kids from a whole range of different um, denominations. Remember, in the mid 20th century, most of the uh, Protestant denominations, mainline Protestant denominations were going liberal. 
and but there were lots of Christians in those denominations who wanted to have a more conservative education for their children, and Bob Jones fit the ticket. And so by the um, 1940s, when my parents went there, uh, it was beginning to be very prosperous and, and a great success. And uh, they both attended there. They didn't graduate, but they both attended. My grandfather on my father's side was actually on the board of directors of Bob Jones. So by the time our generation came along in the um, early 1970s, uh, it was made sense for us to go there too. And when when you get there, and again, I, I really appreciated how you are, you're very positive about the way in which the Lord equipped you throughout your life. You know, you you don't write about your experience at Bob Jones in a kind of negative way, really. You you talk about the way in which you realized you were somewhat different than other members of the student body, but it wasn't different because you wanted a hedonistic lifestyle, which was forbidden there, obviously. It was because you were becoming um, you're becoming an Anglophile. You were reading the poetry of T.S. Eliot, and you were, you know, you were imagining a life in three-piece suits and hot cups of tea and pipes and that sort of thing. And it is, and it is during this time when I believe, Father, you you become an Anglican. Is that correct? Yeah, we were actually um, allowed to go to a little independent Anglican church there in Greenville, South Carolina, which had been founded by a uh, a former Episcopal priest. And this was back in the 1970s, before the current crop of Anglican breakaway churches had been founded. Uh, and we were allowed to go there for Sunday evening service. So it became part of a, I became part of a little sort of Anglophile clique of students who were a bit more intellectual and um, all of us a bit critical of this, the uh, hot gospel, deep South, deep South religion. Uh, and Angl Anglicanism offered us a little bit of a sort of aesthetical way out. Uh, but we appreciated the worship and the history and the liturgy. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, ca I caught a serious dose of Anglophilia. And did you understand at that time all of the all of the kind of ins and outs of Anglicanism, what the Anglican communion was, what these different, you know, what the Episcopal Church was in relation to the Church of England or the breakaway groups in North America, or or it was just purely an experience of religion for you that was that just felt that just felt right. No, I was captivated by the Anglican ethos and the Anglican ideal. And of course, while I was there, um, I got a good number of books from the library to read about Anglicanism and Anglican history. Um, what's that famous book by uh, called Anglicanism uh, by the evangelical scholar um, Griffith Thomas, W. Griffith Thomas, uh, and it's a classic book on the history and the ethos of Anglicanism, and that was in the Bob Jones Library, so I got that out and I read up and uh, learned a fair bit about it uh, in my, my final two years at Bob Jones. Excellent. And now also during this time, you, you met a woman named June. And she she had work for you to do. There were uh, you you write in the book about how the men of your college were in in a sense kind of farmed out to members of the community who needed jobs to be done, and they would pay you. Uh, and you you providentially were picked up one day to do some work by a woman named June who was who was a Catholic, and she had an enduring influence on you and and relationship with you henceforth in your life. Will you tell us about? this initial experience with June and who she was. Yeah, June Reynolds was a uh, Catholic lay woman, a little old lady uh, with white hair and uh, a charming smile. And she hired me to do some yard work. And I went back every, every Saturday to um, do yard work for her. And uh, she seemed to like me and I liked her. And we got a conversation going. Uh, 
about books and about um, education and so forth. She never talked about religion very much, but she was the first Catholic I met who had a real, um, obviously a real deep and sincere faith, uh, which I found very impressive. It was quiet. It was confident. It was um, obviously well thought out uh, and deeply spiritual. And I could sense all of that and pick that up from her. And her, she would therefore stayed in touch with me after I left Bob Jones and encouraged my path into the Anglican priesthood. Uh, and then when I published my first book, was a, which was a book of conversion stories, dedicated it to her. Yeah, and and you you mentioned that her daughter was a nun as well, and um, I I just found myself wondering reading about the your account of her early on here. Now you you just mentioned that she encouraged you to pursue the Anglican priesthood, but I have to wonder if she was praying even then that the Lord might be at work in you to to bring you into full communion with the Catholic Church. Oh, absolutely, she was. Yep, yeah. although yeah. she never told told me that explicitly. She also, as you say in the book, was also helpful to you in the next stage of, of your life journey, which was going to Oxford. Uh, I believe I believe you mentioned in the book that maybe she she let you borrow some money or gave you some money to uh, to to get yourself over there, or maybe that was another another moment along uh, it, it, somewhere mixed into this account. But no, at any no, rate, no, you're right. You you're you you you've been a perceptive reader of the book. Um, I had left Bob Jones and went to teach English in a little Christian school in Pennsylvania for a year. And my dad said, we'll, we'll pay for your college, but if you want to go to grad school, you have to pay for it yourself. So uh, I didn't have any money, but I happened to get a good job that summer and June. And by this time I had applied to a seminary called Theological College in England. And uh, June wrote to me and said, you really need to do this. And here's a thousand dollars. Well, this was 1979 when a thousand dollars was a lot more money. So she lent me that money, and I, I was able to get started in, at my uh, seminary in England because of that. Yeah, and let, let's uh, let's talk about that. So, you know, getting to go to Oxford, you know, you you relate the story almost, you know, forgive me for this comparison, but almost as if you've gotten your letter to to get to go to Hogwarts or something like your Harry Potter. You know, you, you've sort of you, you've hit the jackpot. You get to go. You get to go across. To England, to this place that has kind of lived in your lived in your soul in a way for a number of years, and you find yourself at Wycliffe Wycliffe College or Wycliffe Hall, right, which is a, yes. a, a theological college of the Church of England, um, known to be uh, uh, more evangelical in its yeah. churchmanship. You can now, tell by the name. Because of Wycliffe, right, exactly. Yeah. But also a college that, and and I know a little bit about this too, also a college that has a reputation or had a reputation anyway for having a kind of, a bit of a highbrow air, you know, like sort of well-born boys who want to be ministers in the Church of England end up there. And here you are, um, not that you don't fit in uh, intellectually, of course you do, but you are not from, you're not from this world. You're not from England. You're not from this environment that that these other men are from. What was your experience like getting settled there in, in Oxford and in, and in England? Well, um, yeah, that's a good question because I didn't fit in with the other Americans who were there and I didn't fit in with the English either. Uh, I was at this time, uh, I have to admit, looking back on it with some uh, rather ruefully, uh, I, I was trying real hard to be an Englishman, I suppose. And um, But my impression of Englishmen was, you know, tweed suits and Sherlock Holmes hats and pipes and cups of tea and, you know, all that sort of um, tweed jackets with leather elbow patches and all that sort of stuff. And, um, but of course, the 
English students were living in 1978. They were they were um, they had long hair and bell bottoms and and tank tops and all that kind of stuff, and were listening to rock and roll music. Uh, and the Americans were on that same kind of page. These are all guys in their 20s, right? And I wasn't fitting in with either side. I'm afraid I was a bit of a fogey. Well, and and you were also in an, an interesting situation because you you in a sense you did your ordination preparation backwards because you started theological college and then found yourself needing to find a bishop who who would ordain you and providentially you did uh what was that experience like sort of navigating the ordination process in the church of england well the theme running through my book is that god will provide and my story if it's been anything it has has been a good example of god just opening the doors step by step and by god's grace having the courage to go through them so uh i realized once I was there a year into it that you could it wasn't good enough just doing your theological training. You had to have a bishop who was going to sponsor you for ordination. And all of the other guys who were there had um, come through the church system and had their bishops and their priests and so forth sponsor them. And I was kind of jumping in from outside. And a good friend of mine said, well, you can come and meet my bishop. So I went with him to meet his bishop, and that bishop seemed to like me. And he was a bit of an outsider himself. So uh, he eventually sponsored me for ordination, uh, and I went through the prop, jumped through the proper hoops to make it happen. Yeah, it's really I, I I really encourage our listeners when they pick up the book to to pay attention to to that part it, because that really is where I when I was reading your book, it, it, the theme really it, it really started to wash over me exactly what you just said like story after story after story that you share is just one one example after another of where God open doors or where God provided. And uh, I think that that's just a real strong suit uh, that uh, that you have going on, a great theme that runs throughout your book. Um, you know, related to that, so you, you go through the ordination process, you finish your training at Wycliffe, and you get ordained. Um, you you end up um, serving as a curate, as, a, as an assistant minister, an assistant priest in a parish, um, and in some respects, your account is during those years, it, it, it read to me anyway, as if this was really a kind of growing up period for you. Um, I wonder if you could just tell us about the kinds of experiences that you were having and what was what was going on in your soul in those early years of your ministry. Yeah, I was in my early 20s, my mid, mid-20s, mid to late 20s by this stage. And um, like most guys in their 20s, I had some issues I had to work out. And God blessed me by introducing by leading me to a couple of priests who were um, aware of, who were involved in the counseling ministry and helped me through some of those issues. Um, Also, it was a time of great uh, excitement as working as a young priest in the Anglican church. The church was, the local, the parish was thriving. We had an active youth group. Um, We saw, I got involved in the healing ministry of the church and learned an awful lot about uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. In, in ministry, but also my understanding of the faith was growing in a more Catholic direction. So I was being introduced more positively to liturgical experiences and to Catholic spirituality at the same time. Yeah, you, you say in your book that it was during this time that you began to draw closer to the sacramental vision. And you have a number of stories in there about how you interacted with the Catholic Church in different ways. You went on retreats and you, you know, it, it seems to me that during that period, um, the Catholic Church was what well, correct me if I'm wrong, but seemed to be coming a little bit anyway into focus as something that could end up becoming a destination for you. Did that seem was that dawning on you then or not quite? 
Oh, yeah. While I was still at Wycliffe in Oxford, June had introduced me to the idea of visiting a Benedictine monastery. So by this time, I was going to Catholic Benedictine monasteries to make my annual retreat. Um, I had been introduced to the rosary from a, uh, one of my parishioners who'd been to Walsingham, the great Marian shrine in England. I joined a, a pilgrimage with fellow Anglicans and Catholics to go to Medjugorje. Medjugorje, this was the early 80s, so Medjugorje was kind of at its zenith at that point. Uh, experienced some miracles there, and uh, all of this was opening opening me up more and more to the Catholic understanding of the church, the sacraments, and salvation, so that by the time I left that job, uh, I was really uh, moving towards the position of being a, what, what people call a Catholic in the Anglican Church. Yes, yes. Well, that, I found that interesting because your formation uh, at Wycliffe and and you know what what you are what you talk about in the book in terms of your anglican piety is not um it didn't it didn't ever come across to me as as anglo catholic in the kind of church party sense it just it seemed to me that you were just a, an open hearted christian of the anglican tradition who became more and more enamored of the truth of 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 the catholic church is that is that right i mean it, it really didn't seem like you participated in church politics much in in anglicanism no. No, you 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 picked that up absolutely right. Uh, I was I was struck by a phrase which I mentioned in the book by the Anglican writer F. D. Morris, hmm. who says a man is most often right in what he affirms and wrong in what he denies. And I thought that through, and I said, "Wow!" I said, "You know, most of my Protestant upbringing was right in what it affirmed, but wrong in what it denied." In other words, it affirmed we love Jesus, but we don't love Mary. We love the Bible, but we don't love church tradition. Um, and so forth and so on. So wherever it was affirming something good, it was right. Where it was denying something, it was probably wrong. And so that little open-mindedness and open-heartedness became my kind of um, motto, I suppose. A man is most often right in what he affirms and wrong in what he denies. And that eventually led me to the Catholic Church. Yeah, I I, I was struck. You, you brought up that F.D. Morris line, uh, many times in the book, and I, I really appreciated that. F.D. Morris is a figure, by the way, who he was a you know, as you know very well, a contemporary of John Henry Newman, but not not someone that very many Catholics know much about. I don't think um, he was someone who, in my in my Anglican formation, as in as in yours, was someone that I I, I came to appreciate. I, I didn't you know, now as a Catholic, I don't agree with everything that he wrote, but um, he's an he's a very interesting figure, and I I found it really. I don't know. It was it was sort of delightful, actually, that you that you fixated on that quote and found it yeah. so kind of helpful to you in your own journey. F. D. Morris was a, was a liberal in the in the in the best sense of the word. He was uh, an, a socialist, uh, a, a writer on social issues in the Anglican Church in the nineteenth century, uh, and that little motto might sum up his life and his work. Actually, that he was open minded, he was open hearted, uh, he was a gentle and a good soul. Um, and and uh, yeah, that that's that little quote changed my life. I was gratified also. Some time ago, someone gave me a, a conversion story of an Episcopal minister from the early 20th century in I think Baltimore, and he wrote his conversion story to the Catholic Church. And I was just amazed how he went to Oxford. He had certain experiences, and then he quotes that F.D. Morris quote. And I'm saying, really? yes, I'm not the only one who's walked on this path. Interesting. And and if I may say, too, I think that the quote is illustrative for the rest of your book, because I, I neglected to mention this at the outset, that your book, and you say this yourself, your book is not meant to be 
a kind of apologetic treatment of of you know all the all the kind of doctrinal points that you were sort of convinced about you know i mean it's just a it's a narrative it's a it's a set of stories that are some of them are funny some of them are sad you know i mean it's just it's your life story um that you're just sort of offering and uh and i think in that respect it's uh morris is kind of a, a good figure to pin to pin a story like that too you know just sort of here's my here's my open heart for you if this can be useful for you i hope i hope it can be well yeah, yeah go ahead part of that is because i've written on those apologetics issues in various other books in more christianity mm -hmm. um, in my collection of apologetics essays and in various places on my blog and elsewhere uh and of course other other men who are um better theologians and Bible scholars than I'll ever be have written on these same issues in a very um, cogent way, in a very clear way. The work of Patrick Madrid and Scott Hahn and Catholic Answers and Steve Ray and various other people. So I wanted mine to be more of a personal memoir, even though I've touched on some of those theological issues. Yeah, absolutely. Um, next in your story, you take a, a pilgrimage to the Holy Land via France and Italy, where you obviously encounter the Catholic church a lot more. And I'd love for you to say something about that, but where, where it lands is you, you're back, you get back to England and you end up in the other great university city of Cambridge. So what, what was going on during this period, during that pilgrimage time and then where you end up back in the UK, uh, but now at Cambridge? Well, the journey was almost uh, chronological as much as, as it was geographical. I had gone from America to England to the Anglican Church, one of the great Protestant churches, and stepped, if you like, back 500 years. But then that pilgrimage traveling through France and Italy and Greece to the Holy Lands was like every the further east I moved, the further back in history I was going. So there was medieval France, and I stayed in monasteries all along the route. Uh, then there was crossing the Alps into Italy, and then there was Rome and the footprints of the apostles. And then in going into Greece, you see road signs to places like Corinth and Thessalonica. And you're saying, oh, it's that Corinth. It's that Thessalonica. And then, of course, to the Holy Land. And uh, every step along the way, became I, became I was more deeply and deeply immersed in the Catholic faith. Uh, and the further I got from England, the more I got away from Protestant Christianity. And yeah. So it was a kind of immersive experience, which was very sacramental. It was it was walking the roads every day, praying in the monasteries with the monks, praying the rosary, and then finally ending up, uh, of course, in the Holy Land with our Lord and the Apostles. Yeah, and after having had the, the, this series of powerful experiences, and 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 those really, our, our readers really need to just read them for for themselves. That you know, you recount some miracles, your different impressions. I mean, it's a beautiful kind of travel log and and with spiritual reflections that that part of your book. Um, but so you're so awakened during that, and then you end up back in the UK in Cambridge, where you really encounter. It seems to me, reading the book anyway, you really encounter this like mainstream liberal. Anglicanism, like going full blast in, in a sense, like in this university context. And it seems to me this is the moment, this is, I guess this is what, the late 80s, maybe early 90s, something around then when it seems like, uh-oh, Anglicanism is definitely not in a good place. Is that, what, what were your, your feelings like during that time? Yeah. Um, Cambridge was, on the one hand, the very best of Anglicanism. I was actually a chaplain at the, the choir school for King's College, Cambridge. And if anybody knows about the Anglican tradition, King's College is like this gem of the Anglican world with this 
what architecturally one of the most beautiful buildings in Christendom, King's, King's College Chapel. This fantastic choir and choral tradition with the most beautiful music and architecture and all the rest. But at the same time, the Christianity at Cambridge was liberal through and through, uh, modernist through and through. Uh, and I could see at that point that my spirit, my my spiritual journey and Anglicanism were going in divergent directions. And it was then that I, that, that I began to be, um, I think, most disillusioned with the, uh, what I call, aesthetic Anglicanism. Anglicanism, which is so beautiful and so delightful and so charming, uh, and yet there's not much substance to it. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Now, I know that in your current, we'll, we'll get to your current situation before long, but I know that in your current situation, you you run a parish uh, where you do very beautiful liturgy and you have a very beautiful space. But I remember, and maybe this resonates with you, I remember when I was contemplating coming into full communion with the Catholic Church, some of my Anglican friends would say, you know, oh, but if you become Catholic, you're going to have to have this, you know, you're going to have to sit through these horrible masses and it's going to, you're not going to have any of this beauty anymore. And funnily enough, on the other side, when I came into the Catholic Church, there were Catholics who said, oh, did you become Catholic because our liturgy is so beautiful? And I remember saying, mm, no, not really, um, actually. But as you say, the the truth is something that then becomes, um, the truth then becomes the the attraction. And uh, and thanks be to God, the beauty is connected to it. But um, I know exactly what you mean, and I and I felt that reading your book. Just you know, you get to maybe the most beautiful place in Anglicanism, and you suddenly realize, you know what, it's about something else. Yeah. And so that took you to the Isle of Wight, where you where you were uh, where you not only were running a parish, but you get married. So throughout this time, you're you're single, and and then you get married, and you're a kind of country a country parson. Um, what was that experience like, at, right right there on the cusp of your coming into the Catholic Church? Well, that had been my dream all along. I don't know if you and your listeners are you're familiar with um, the Anglic the English poet George Herbert, 17th century poet George Herbert, uh, who had this idyllic life as a country parson. And for those who don't know, a parson is simply a country preacher, a country pastor, pastor of a country parish. And George Herbert lived this idyllic life in the shadow of Salisbury Cathedral in a little, um, in a tiny little parish church, ministering to the poor country people um, and being a bit of a scholar and a poet. Uh, and that was my dream. I thought if I could, that's, that's all I want to do is I just want to be a, an Anglican country parson with a, with a beautiful old, you know, medieval church uh, and a big country rectory with a big yard and big garden. Uh, and that was the sort of idyllic country life I was looking for. And by God's grace, that was, I was able to do that for five or six years to on the Isle of Wight, which is a, uh, an Island just off the South coast of England. And it's a good lesson also that sometimes our ultimate destination is not the one that we see to start with, and that God is quite happy for us to take a second best, but then to lead us on from that when the time is right. And it was not my destiny to be an English country parson to the end of my days, but it was a good stopping place, and it was, it was, it was a beautiful dream to start with. There was nothing intrinsically wrong with it. Um, but it was there that, uh, that I, it was th that was a good stepping stone from there into the Catholic Church. Yes, and and by and as I mentioned, by this time you're married. You have a couple of children, I think, and you decide 
you decide this is the moment to, to come into the Catholic church. Um, I was struck by your, um, you know, I, just the kind of the sense then, okay, you've decided to take this big leap um, and you do it. You still feel very much called to be a priest. And so you begin exploring possibilities for what that may be, but you have to deal immediately with the things that most normal kind of married men with families have to deal with. You need a job, you need a paycheck, and you've been wearing a clerical collar for years. And suddenly you're looking in your closet and you're like, what, what do I put on now? Like you, you're literally having, you're looking at yourself in the mirror and, and having a little bit of a kind of existential crisis. Well, you know, maybe I've said too much, maybe I've overstated it, but what was that like? No, you're absolutely right. Your identity was, as it should be, is is caught up in being a priest and that's who you are and not just the job that you do. Um, and so suddenly that's not who you are anymore. And by this time I had been on the path to ministry for like 10 years of my life, I suppose. And, and so I can remember very clearly going clothes shopping with my wife and saying, you know, I don't know if I'm kind of a jeans and sports shirt guy or whether I'm a suit and tie kind of a guy. I'm not sure anymore. And so, it was, yeah, it was that was indicative of a of a personal crisis um, and in which I had to find a new self. Yeah. Well, part of that self was you really you started writing a lot. You'd always written, I think, according to the the book. But, you know, you really start to develop that as something that is very important to you and obviously still is very, very important to you. But you're playing this back and forth game, this waiting game for years with the Catholic Church in England, trying to negotiate the possibility of being reordained uh, with a special dispensation from celibacy because of of your because of your wife. Um, what kept us up a little bit uh, of what was going on in in your life while you were trying to figure that out? Yeah, well, the pastoral provision had been provided by Pope John Paul II for Episcopalians in the USA. And then with the crisis of women's ordination in the Church of England in the late 1980s and early 1990s, uh, the church extended that pastoral provision to priests in Anglican priests in England. So a lot of my fellow priests were getting fellow Anglican converts were were being ordained, including the men who were married. Um, but for me, uh, I never the different dioceses that I worked in never said no. They just said not now, not you. Um, and so I was continually uh, my my application was continually de- deferred for various different reasons. One of the reasons was to be um, charitable, they didn't know what to do with this former evangelical American who was over here. Some of the other men had gone, were English and had gone through the English system. They knew what to do with them, but even that was a stretch to know what to do with them. Uh, but to do what to do with me was difficult. Also, I had begun writing, and some of my writing, because it was of a conservative nature, uh, was at times not explicitly, but certainly implicitly critical of the liberal Catholic regime in England. And so uh, there were certain bishops who, nobody ever said this, but I was probably put on a little blacklist. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And so, and so again, they were always very kind and polite, but they just never moved my case forward. So I waited for 10 years in England before finally being accepted for ordination in the U.S., 
Yeah, and that that was a wonderful pro, sort of providential story that that you tell you and and this I guess brings us up to the there and back again part. Even though you're originally from Pennsylvania, uh, Greenville, South Carolina is I believe where Bob Jones University is. So you know you have this sort of home perch there in in Greenville, and by God's grace, you got to come back there uh, where you are now, ministering as a Catholic priest. Um, what has that experience been like for you these years? Well, yeah, my my family had moved to Greenville from Pennsylvania in the early 1980s, where my dad and my older brother started a business. And so Greenville had become my hometown in the States, even though I was living in England. So I was then accepted for the, uh, uh, for, for the to, as a candidate for the priesthood for the Diocese of Charleston, which is where Greenville is. And then the door opened up for a job in Greenville uh, at a Catholic high school. And that um, allowed us to be able to return to Greenville, where I was ordained as a Catholic priest just uh, about a quarter of a mile away from that little Anglican church where I first came into the Anglican church when I was at Bob Jones. Wow. And there's some wonderful, wonderful stories in the book about the way God guided you there. A, a man, a, a priest, I believe, spoke a kind of word of, of prophecy over you that you would come back to the United States and that you would be ordained there. And um, another priest, another local priest there in Greenville just suggested to you, oh, well, you could certainly, you could certainly come here and um, so it's, again, just really worth uh, actually reading the book and, and just reading your account of, of these different these different people who spoke into your life and to kind of, who sort of helped you uh, along the journey. Um, just uh, a couple more things here. When now you 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 wade a little bit into the book about the question of married priests. And yes. so now you, you're obviously an exceptional case. Everyone knows that, that most Catholic priests are not married men, but there are, there are married priests. There are actually a fair number here and there. And um, so now what, what is your view on, on your identity as a married man and a priest? And, and what do you think may be, may be in store for the future for that sort of thing? Yeah. First of all, I should say that it's above my pay grade. Mm. Um, and it's not really up for me to be campaigning for married priests, um, and I never do that. And I always want to honor and respect and, uh, you know, tip my hat to my fellow priests, the vast majority who are not only celibate, but who, in my experience, accept that discipline with uh, a joyfulness and a, and, uh, and a positive attitude. So it's not for me to, to press for married priests. However, I can express my opinion. Uh, and it's my opinion that uh, I, I wish that the I could see that the Vatican might delegate this decision. It's a disciplinary matter, by the way. It's not a doctrinal matter. And so the Vatican could delegate this down to um, local bishops' conferences to decide on a case-by-case -case basis on whether there are some married men who could be ordained as priests. I'm thinking especially of some of our dedicated and well-educated deacons who are uh, older men whose families have grown up. That uh, some, the, the church calls them very probati, tested older men, uh, and that if the Vatican were to delegate this down to local um, bishops' conferences, then the local bishops could decide on a case-by-case -case local basis on whether this is appropriate for their particular area and their particular um, people. So, for instance, in the developing world, where budgets are low and money is tight, and it's much more of a missionary environment, those bishops might say, we can't afford to have married men uh, and support their families. But in more affluent countries like the North America and Europe, the bishops, bishops might say, you know, 
if the local parishes are willing to support this particular man on a case-by-case basis, um, let's move forward. So I think there are ways that it could move forward in a way which is practical, but is still supporting and upholding uh, and honoring the celibate, the celibate, the, the predominantly celibate ministry while still making some further exceptions. Yeah, I appreciated your insights there based, uh, as you say, not, not, on, not, as a, not as a campaign, but just on your own, your own experiences in ministry as a married Catholic man and, and your own opinions. Um, you, you come back at the end of the book to, to June, whom we talked about before, who was such an important figure in your life. I wonder, uh, how do you talk about her at the end of your book? I thought it was very moving. Well, I was very touched to stay in touch with, uh, very moved to stay in touch with Sister Mary Lucy, June's daughter, who was a very holy poor Clare nun here in Greenville. And um, after I was ordained, she gave me the honor of asking me to hear her confession. So I would go and see her once a month and hear her confession. By this time, she was very crippled with a deteriorating bone disease, and she was uh, blind as well. Uh, And we shared an awful lot together. Uh, she shared that she had been praying for me to be ordained as a priest, and she saw my ordination, even though I was married, as being somewhat of a miracle, um, due to her inter- not due to her intercession, but she saw that she thought she had a part in it. Um, and she told me that her mother June, in her final years, by this time, of course, June had passed away, um, but that June had a sort of dark night of the soul experience at the end of her life, and felt that she hadn't done enough for God, and. Sister Mary Lucy smiled and said, but Father, she said, you've told your conversion story to lots of people, haven't you? She said to thousands of people. I said tens of thousands. And she said, and whenever you do, you you mention my mother, don't you? And I say, yes. And she said, well, then my mother gets some of the credit. So, um, and she was absolutely right about that. And that's sort of the parting line in the book that, you know, this simple person who was a, a lay person just very faithfully was living the faith, doing what she could with what she had where she was as a retired Catholic laywoman. Uh, she met me and she influenced my life for the better. And you never know how God is using your sm- seemingly small and humble witness uh, to do big things in the world. Amen to that. The book is There and Back Again, A Somewhat Religious Odyssey. Father Dwight Longenecker, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the Ignatius podcast today. Thanks for the invitation. God bless you too. This episode has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. Please visit us at ignatius.com. Follow us on social media and be sure to rate and review this podcast. Until next time, I'm Andrew Pettiprin. God bless. God bless.